Well, hey everyone, Colin here from the team at Hide and Seek. I wanted to take a brief moment and let everyone know that because of our trip last week two to Nino, we will not be releasing episode four until April fourth. We're just taking one week off to ensure that we can compile all of our data appropriately that was taken on the trip. So there won't be an episode next week on the twenty seventh, but make sure that you tune in April fourth for episode four. Thank you so much for all of your support so far and our efforts to uncover the mystery of Nancy Moore's disappearance. Thank you so much for listening. The following episode of Hide and Seek contains graphic content. Viewer discretion is advised. And then was there anybody else that you guys, that you interviewed in your time on the case that, that came up on your radar that you had a hunch that maybe they were a suspect as well? You no, know, there was always the guy, um, the guy that killed the gal. Bernard? Oh, yeah, Bernard. Thank you, Bernard Hall. So I never went and interviewed him, but the problem was he's in a mental, yeah. mental area of Monroe. Ben came to uh, um, focusing quite a bit on uh, one person, and I was focusing in, on another person. He lived very close. I mean, if I had a good arm as a crow flies, I could throw a baseball almost and hit his house where he had been living. There were... Red flags that came out of Jim. Ben's suspicions went to Jim. And they're all very valid. And, and so again, Ben could be absolutely right dead on. My focus was more on Cal uh, Jr. As far as homicides around Tenaino, just, it just doesn't happen. However, within the same short period of time, I think only in few months, uh, this woman was murdered uh, by Powell Jr. Just a, it's just lightning to me doesn't strike that close very often like that. The uh, the uh, fashion of the murder of how Keith Powell murdered this woman, that was one of my main reasons I thought, oh, I mean, he is a murderer, a proven murderer. She's a Roman, like a pagan, searching places that I've never gone. Destroy walls, endless walls, but ain't no rock to stop me from getting through. heard from Detective Elkins and Private Investigator Fred Doughty. But before we get into who Fred believes is responsible for Nancy's disappearance, I told you last week that I added a new member to the hide-and-seek team. This is someone I'm extremely excited to work with. How are you? Good to see you. All right. Okay. 30 minutes between each stop. Oh, did they? 
Oh, I didn't realize it was 30 minutes. 30 minutes, that's it. Oh, geez, so you were flying. Flying? Yeah. Faster than OJ through there. <laughs> it's, it's going. It's going. I just gotta... This is Dr. Maurice Godwin. He has an extensive background in cases similar to Nancy's. Allow me to share a little bit about who Maurice is and what he brings to Nancy's case. He has a PhD in psychology with a concentration in investigation, a master's in forensic science and criminology, a bachelor's in behavioral science, and an associate's in criminal justice technology. And if that's not enough, adding to his impressive repertoire, he's assisted and taken on well-known cases such as the DC Sniper and Derek Todd Lee, also known as the Baton Rouge serial killer. You may have even recently heard his name brought up regarding a 12-year missing persons case for a Georgia woman named Tara Grinstead. Maurice was a huge component in leading the investigation, and thanks to his help and support, along with that of the well-known podcast Up and Vanished by Payne Lindsay, this is no longer a cold case. Maurice is not only willing to help in my investigation of Nancy's disappearance, he even flew out to Washington and made the trip to Tenino with me. I wanted to get Maurice's professional opinion and thoughts about Nancy's case. So, with Jim's testimony and it changing, because initially he said he had his kids Friday night, March 6th. They had talked about going on a date on March 7th. He calls. She's not answering. What's odd was in the file he talks about how he was intending on trying to keep his kids overnight on Saturday the same day he's supposed to go on a date with Nancy but do you find it suspicious at all with his testimony changing as much as it did because again he said he was had his kids Friday his kids the, the kids confirmed with mom like he's making it up as he goes okay and then when he's interviewed by Ben Elkins a few years later, he says he didn't go over on Saturday to check, and when he walked in the house, he said it was now on Friday. And then he also says the two weeks prior to her disappearance, when they had sex, he did perform, and he was they did have sex, but she didn't stay the night, like he originally said, and he didn't make her breakfast. Well, that like, could be an ego thing there. A what thing? That... That changing that story could be an ego thing. Oh. That, that could be. Okay. Then with Nancy's front door, and this is kind of a hypothetical scenario, um, when Nancy's door was left open, yeah, she had her pack of cigarettes sitting on her chair outside. The door was ajar and was open. There was TV on, lights were on. And there was a glass of wine on the table, and then there was another glass of wine that was empty also on the table. If someone who Nancy trusted, she allowed them into her house, and... Is there somebody that he could pick up pick up a phone and call somebody to and ask? And say, is she home? Well, yeah, or have they heard from her? I believe so. I'm not 100% sure, though. I, I, but that's something that could have been, hey, she's not answering, and calling around family, friends. Or, or somebody, I mean, she's not home. Right. Her cigarettes are out here. Or, or what, what, what's the deal here? How about, right. a, is there a neighbor that lives there? The neighbor, 
they did live there. Uh, there were there was neighbors right next to her house. They were pretty close, and the only thing the neighbor ever said was, on that night of March sixth, they believed it was that Friday that they overheard a neighbor saying a female voice saying, "Hurry up, let's get going," and then a car door shuts. But they never heard the vehicle drive away. The neighbor said that they thought it was Nancy talking to her daughters and taking her daughters to maybe to the hospital or something. But that was it. There was nothing ever, no no, no neighbor ever heard or... Well, her children else. was with their daddy, won't it? Right. Yeah. And so obviously that's not possible. Um, and they said that they heard this around 11.30 or 12, 11.30 or 12 a.m. Well, let, let me ask you something. Why? If, you, if your children is with your daddy... Why you got a problem somebody coming to your house? But see, that's that's the other part was where I've always heard that she was private, but stuff. But if your children is with their daddy, why you got a problem with a man coming to your home? I don't know. That's a great question. I, I don't. I don't know. That's I know. Actually, you, in fact, if you have, if you had the real truth to that answer, because that secret, there's a secret there somehow. Yeah. There's a secret in this case. Yeah. And I'm telling you, it's, cli- it's clientele. When we arrived in Tenino, I was able to sit down with Maurice and dive into the case file. Did you get a chance to take a look over the case file that I sent you? Yes, I read through it, read through all of it, yes. What are your thoughts, just initially, about the case? It, it, it seemed to me that... um. Uh, a lot of the people the detectives talked to uh, had a lot of problems cooperating with him. Yeah. And cooperating with the, the the investigation on this case. Yeah. I'm not quite sure why, if if they were just didn't like law enforcement or they just didn't like talking about her. Sure. Is that what sticks out to you? Well, that that, that was just one of them. That's what, just one thing that that uh, struck me uh, as odd. Yeah. Because, you, you know, France would be shocked that she's she's missing like that and want to cooperate. But it seemed like they were at odds with the people that were questioning it. Yeah. Okay. When the detective walked through Nancy's home, there were no signs of forced entry or any evidence of a struggle inside her home. Her lights, TV, keys and purse were inside. Her car was in the front driveway. What does that tell us, you know, with those facts, what does that tell us about Nancy's case? She... She uh, abruptly left. Okay. Whether she was forced or by her own decision? Well, you mean, I think she was, uh, she left uh, through a roost. Okay. A roost. Yeah. A trick. Yeah. Okay. So, let's say in, in, in if this was a roost, then it was planned and it was premeditated, correct? Um, but let's say this was somebody who came over... Well, let, let, let me let me let me say something first. Uh, if it was somebody that you, she dated, that 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 would harm her, isn't it a lot easier to take her out on a date and then take her out somewhere and harm her, and you wouldn't even have to be dealing with her house. Yeah. Right. Right. So, you know, that's the only thing about that. Why you got to involve her house? And the wine glasses and all that stuff. If it was somebody that she would willingly get in a car with, yeah. What I don't understand is 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 to willingly go away. Why she would leave her 
purse, her identification, her money. You know, apparently she did or did not have a cell phone, but maybe that was with her because it's never been found. Yes. You know, so if she was willing, willingly going with somebody. It sounded it sound like a short trip or less talk. Yeah. Or less talk type thing. No intentions of going somewhere to spend money, not, not to go out to a bar. No, no, no. This was a short, a short conversation. Why do you think the door was left open then? Because uh, going could come back. With the with the weather being as cold as it was, you know, and her saying maybe we're going out to the person's car to talk, and then they take off. Yes, right. Okay. No intentions of even pop. Maybe they lured her into going to the vehicle to talk and not inside, which kind of. Doesn't doesn't add up with the wine glass, the second wine glass, yeah, that's right, on the coffee table. But maybe she went to the person's car to, to have a conversation with them instead of inside for whatever reason. That's right. And then takes off, and the door's left open. That's right. Okay. Yeah, I mean, just it's be- too it's too uh, it's too uh, available to be witnessed by someone where her house is on the main road. Okay. So I think I think a ruse was used to lure her into the vehicle. Really? Yeah. And you find out what that that the secret behind the ruse, you then you'll know how, what what this case is about. Okay. Talk to me what you mean by with the secret and behind the case. There's a there's a there there's a secret in her uh, victimology. Okay. That's the social background in her life. That we don't know about, uh, and if the sheriff, if the sheriff department knows about it, then they've not done enough looking in the background about it. Uh, that, that in her background, that has led to her harm, uh, and I think that she uh, abruptly left because I mean, if you if you want if you just didn't get up. And and just just leave like that. You want to left your cigarettes on the outside like that. So you saw that that, that she had, her pack of cigarettes were sitting there in the chair that she would usually smoke in. It was in the the cup holder. And from what I know, and I you know I don't smoke cigarettes personally, but from what I know is if they sit outside too long, they get ruined. And you would the only time someone would leave them outside is if they naturally forgot them. Or in this case, now where was her purse? Inside the house. Yeah. Yeah. You know, so to the pack of cigarettes is 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 a uh, significant to the case. You think with well, I think I think her her personal items being left behind, uh, she was abruptly taken. Okay. And then what about the two wine glasses inside? One was there were two two glasses of wine um, or wine glasses sitting on a coffee table. One was had wine in it. The other the other one was empty. Do you think that? Do you think that implies that she was expecting somebody? Do you think I think that implies that the person who she had spoken to gave her the impression that there, there, there was going to be a visit? And you think that was part of the the ruse? That's right. With no signs of a struggle or forced entry. She trusted someone enough to place herself in the vulnerable position to be alone with this individual. But why would someone have the intentions of kidnapping or killing Nancy? She had no enemies, neither was she hanging out with dangerous people. Although, 
It could be said that a female who is bar hopping could potentially be at risk of being targeted, especially if she's not fully aware of her surroundings. Keep in mind, Nancy was only 4'11 and around 120 pounds. Even though she may have put up a fight during this possible encounter, I imagine most men would still be able to physically control the situation and apprehend her. This leads me to our next suspect. Enter Bernard Howell. Bernard was 26 years old and lived with his dad a few blocks away from Nancy at the time of her disappearance. He worked as a meat salesman for a local meat company and didn't have a criminal background. He kept mostly to himself and wasn't one to cause trouble. When Nancy first disappeared, he didn't cross anyone's radar as a potential suspect. 17 months later, Bernard brutally murdered a woman named Vonda Boone along Highway 507. He was found guilty and is now serving a 26-year sentence at Monroe Correctional Complex, which is the second largest prison in Washington state. After Vonda's murder, Detective Haller naturally considered Bernard as a suspect for Nancy's case. Haller was granted a warrant immediately after the arrest to search Bernard's home, where evidence was bagged that he felt was important. While cross-examining the evidence between Vonda and Nancy's case, he noticed the meat packaging Bernard sold was in Nancy's freezer. Because Bernard was already arrested for Vonda's murder, one could argue he's a strong suspect for Nancy's disappearance. And again, these events happened within a close time frame and distance of each other. I met with private investigator Fred Dowdy about this. Fred assisted Ben Elkins briefly when he was originally assigned to the case. Fred and I have spoken over the phone quite a few times about Nancy's disappearance. He said he was willing to meet with me in person to discuss more about his theories and review the case file I had recently gotten a hold of. Um, the the, uh, the Vonda uh, woman that was uh, killed by Bernard Howell, he had a he had a truck, a um, um, I don't know it was a four it was a it was a uh, smaller truck, but uh, one Toyota? that could get around. It might have been a Toyota. Okay. But nothing kind of came from it, from what I understood. You know, yeah, I'm not aware of it, that. It, it is the the reason why you think it's Bernard. Is because her, her cigarettes were still on the chair, and the door was left open. The abruptness of her just being taken like that, uh, leaving the door open, and, and stuff like that. It, does that is that a reason one reason why did you feel like it was just him snatched her up, like he he just suddenly blitz attacked the other girl like that? Yeah, I believe he. It, it's like rapists. There are two types, mainly two types of rapists. There are um, those who have some type of re relation, a relative, or some type of established relationship to some degree. And then there are the opportunists, yeah. um, who, who may have seen this person, talked to this person, sold meat to this person. Um, and that's who I believe, uh, why I, one of the reasons, how uh, everything about that it, it just to me is just I I cannot say more. It takes me my eyes off of Jim Roth because I sat I in the interviews. No, and for and, and this is um, every time I say the the name Jim Roth, I think of a name um, Melvin Foster. Does that sound familiar? Back in the eighties, uh, Melvin Foster was a taxi cab driver who was. Um, 
in the focus of the Green River Task Force. Um, he was, his name was slandered. Uh, somehow it got out there, but he was the guy. He was the Green River murderer. He was on television, uh, newspapers, and he was um, really harassed by law enforcement. Um, they just focused on him. And um, later on, of course, uh, he was proven that it wasn't him. And I think of what the, the damage that did to his family. Because I, I, his, one of his, uh, his children, one of his sons, is an acquaintance of mine. I just can't imagine growing up like that, thinking everybody in the world thinks my dad was is the Green River murderer. And to go down, uh, and, and for Jim Roth and his family, I, I got to say, uh, I, I, I hope whoever did this, excuse me, I'm going to turn off my phone, I hope whoever did this uh, um, confesses quick and that, um, so to just to clear Jim Ross' name, and what a legacy to, you know, you work all your life for a reputation. He might have been a great guy and a great, he's a little bit odd, but uh, if, if uh, being odd is a crime, man, we'd all be in jail. But I, I just... Just for the simple fact that, uh, just to clear his name, if he is innocent, I think that would be wonderful. But um, no, I, I think the it, call, it comes down to um, how is a proven murderer. All the circumstances of the, uh, the the proximity of his house to where she lives. I could walk from her driveway and walk to where he lived in just a few minutes. At a fast clip, but I get, it's just a few minutes away. It's a small town, and I always say lightning lightning doesn't strike twice, where like this. Uh, in only a matter of months, another person is murdered, probably murdered. I'm assuming Nancy's been murdered. So yeah, and the, and the fact that she is petite, she's out there on the porch, probably a lot, having a cigarette. It's. Uh, um, the highway, which is Highway 507 that went in front of where Nancy lives, yeah. and then there you go through the little town, Highway 507 actually is the main drag through Tenino, yeah. and just on the other side of town, it's just a short stretch, is where Howell was found with uh, Vanna, her body. And that's, if you drove from her house to where Vanna's body was found with Howell, you're only talking a couple minutes. Yeah. So yeah, um, very small, he's a strong kid. Um, he was a restaurant school and uh, young and healthy. She recognized him. You know, he's been there before. And who knows, maybe they had an established relationship that nobody knows about. Uh, it's possible. Was he, he, was, you know, he, he wasn't cooperative, was he? No, no. He, uh, I, I tried to interview him and through his counselor at the correction center where he's at, and I got two thumbs down on that one. But I'm hoping someday uh, somebody somehow yeah. may be able to uh, talk to him. And but yeah, it, she's very small, very petite. It wouldn't take anything to go up, go in the house. Hey, what's going on? Uh, if, if if she's there, and um, and quickly uh, render her unconscious, just like that. Do you think he would dispose the body the same way he was going to with Vonda and? and uh, I think so. Dump her somewhere. Yeah, yeah. If it worked with, uh, if it worked with uh, Nancy, Nancy, it would work with Bonda. And again, where he, with the kind of truck he drove, um, and the area where he was familiar with, where his dad lived, 
is out there, a dead-end long country road, way out the gravel road, with miles, square miles of wilderness and swamps, with uh, areas where his truck could go, or, 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 or quad, lots of ponds, um, swamps that she could have been easily concealed in. Because of the nature of Vonda's killing, one could conclude that Bernard would not stop killing if it weren't for his arrest. It was done in a way that reminds me of the notorious killer Ted Bundy. Does that mean he's killed before, or was Vonda his first victim? To get a better understanding of what I've been told about this homicide, I reached out to a gal by the name of Sherry. She had actually walked past Bernard without knowing the monstrous act he had just committed. Here's our phone conversation about what she remembers. So, uh, yeah, thanks again for for your willingness to to share. Can you share with me the events of the day? Because I know that you were there on the trail during the time that you had spotted Bernard uh, there. So can you Mm -hmm. tell me a little bit about what you remember? Um, uh, It was August the 8th, 2010, and I went for a walk on the trail with my two little dogs, and I left my house about 6.40 p.m., and I noticed there was a silver Nissan pickup parked in the parking area at the trail access at Churchill Road. And there was a small white chest freezer in the back with strapping tables around it. Um, I went ahead and went on my walk, which is heading east on the trail. And I noticed that there was a man standing or guy standing down in the area between 507 and the trail. And I just kept walking, but I kept looking over my shoulder because I didn't, I didn't know if he was making camp there. The grass was really mashed down, and so I thought, well, maybe he was transient and making a, a camp. Anyway, I kept looking back, and he would go up on back up on the trail and then back down into the ditch area, and I just kept going. And there were other people on the trail. I saw a young couple that were walking on the trail uh, that I met, and they didn't say anything, so I didn't. And so I went down to the intersection of 507 uh, where the trail crosses it, and I turned around and came back, which is my typical walk. And I noticed that the pickup was now parked on Highway 507 alongside the road, and the guy was still down in that area where I'd seen him earlier. And he, again, was going back and forth into the ditch and then back up on the trail and circling around. Um, he had lots of grass debris on him because he had a heavy sweatshirt on. And he smiled at me. He went up on the opposite side of the trail. I walked by with the dogs. And uh, I just kept going, and he never said anything. And I just I just walked right past him. Um, did he? Did you guys? So the only interaction between the two is is greeting each other. He just. I. We never spoke. He smiled at me. I just walked right on by because he was a little bit weird. I, it just was so out of place that he would even, you know, be doing what he was doing. Because you would see, you know, bicyclers and joggers and rollerbladers or whatever, and this guy was obviously out of place. So was his pickup. And so I went back to our house. I got there at about 7.20, and I told my husband I thought something strange was going on. So we got in our 
vehicle and went slowly by the Nissan pickup so that my husband could write down the license plate number and I had the, my camera so I took a picture and the photo was time stamped 7.38 p.m. So we went about an eighth of a mile and turned around in a driveway and came back and the same man that I had seen came up out of the brush, got in the pickup and drove away heading east on 507 toward Rainier. And uh, then he must have gone back. I don't know if he turned around down at the Y. I don't know what he did, but then he went back into town, and that's when uh, the he was asked some guy if he could help him bury some gal or something. Yeah. So looking at the maps right now on on Google, you started. Uh, I'm Bull assuming. Street. Well, Churchill. It? It's Churchill Road where the trail crosses Churchill Road. I live yeah. on Mole Street, and so I walk across 507. Yes. So you started on Churchill, and if you're going from your house and you cross the intersection, did you do? Did you go right down Churchill or did you go left? If I went across 507, and then Churchill, and I would take oh, sorry, left. Turn, I would turn left on the trail. I went up oh. Churchill. So I, there's a little incline there. So Mole Street yeah. is where our house is. I walked across 507 and onto Churchill, and then I take a left and head east right. on the trail. And so then would... you'll look on the you look on your map. The trail crosses 507 about a half a mile or so down, and that's where I turn around and walk back. Oh yeah. Okay, I'm seeing it. Okay, and, so and you went after, all the way down there and then came back and he came was back there. And he had, yes, he had moved his truck over to the highway um, in order to access her body, I'm guessing, uh, that he had moved it from where it was parked at the on Churchill at the trail access. He had moved it from there and parked it right alongside the highway on the uh, shoulder of the road. Mm-hmm. And then after I got home uh, and we had done the our little clandestine picture taking, whatever, <laughs> when I came back then that night, I noticed all these flashing lights. I could see them from our house. And that's when I walked down and spoke with a police officer and asked him what was going on. And he just told me to go back in my house. And I said, does it have anything to do with the pickup that had the freezer in the back? And he sent a Thurston County deputy investigator to talk to me but by then by the time we he came back and talked to me it was almost midnight I think and then we went I showed them on the trail where it was that we walked down the trail with flashlights and I showed him where I'd seen him mm -hmm. and so if you're I, I'm still looking at the, at the images so or mm -hmm. at the maps when you go on the trail you took a left how many how many yards would you say you went I down? am not the right person to ask that question. I am <laughs> terrible with distance. Okay. How far down the trail do you think that was after I turned off Churchill? How many yards or feet? About, about where the highway sign is there that says Mole Street and Churchill. Okay. He thinks about 60 yards, whatever that means. Oh, okay. I'm terrible with distance. Okay. Okay. And then you mentioned something about, so when you originally passed him, was he just kind of standing there? And, and he was down in the ditch. Do I really have to tell you what he was doing? 
<laughs> I thought he was peeing, but I think he was jacking off. So I think her body was down in there, and he was standing there. Because he yeah. looked kind of dazed, and I, so I just glanced at him, and I just kept walking. Okay. Did he stare at you at all? No, nope, he didn't even see me. But not the first time. I don't think he even saw me. He was looking toward the highway, and he had his back to me. He had on a, a hoodie, uh, like pullover hooded sweatshirt. Okay. And then you come back, and he's still in the ditch now, but he's, he's on a... But, but his uh, vehicle has been moved. During the time that I passed mm -hmm. him and went down to the corner and turned around and came back, he had moved his vehicle from Churchill to 507, uh, mm -hmm. right down in there where her body was, I'm assuming. And um, he, at that time, he was agitated going back and forth because I think he'd seen me coming and there was another couple that were walking on the trail and I think he was waiting for everybody to be gone so he could actually uh, move her. And so he was, I could see him, he'd pop up out of it because there's quite a, the trail's high it's like it's a railroad bed that they've paved, and so it's up high off of, you know, it's higher than the highway even, and then, I think, and then the, so there's a right-of-way or whatever you want to call it that runs between the railroad tracks and the highway, and it's a low spot in there, and he was going up onto the trail and then back down into that low spot and then back up on the trail. He was watching me walk toward him, and then when I got close, he came back up again, and he walked across the trail, I'm assuming, so that I would look at him and not down to the right where she was. It's a pretty, I don't know, it's a pretty wide area. but um, So I just looked at him, and he smiled at me. I didn't say anything. He didn't say anything. I just kept walking. And uh, then he went back down in the ditch. Okay. So, so between 507 and the trail, there's a strip of, like, trees and grass? It's grassy, and there are some trees, and it's is actually that, some wetlands in there. Is that where he did it, or is it on the other side of the trail? Uh, it was between, well, where he was at was down between the trail and Highway 507. And is that where Vonda was murdered? I believe so. I think that is what they established it. And he had a lot of grass and debris on his sweatshirt, on the back of his sweatshirt. You didn't see any blood on him when you were... Nope, I did not. But then I didn't, I didn't really look at him that closely. I mean, I noticed him. I saw that he had grass on his shirt, sweatshirt. And I thought he was very strange and out of place to be hopping up and down. You ever, have you ever seen him before? Nope. Not that I would have been known of. Or would have known. Uh -uh. So when you were walking on this trail, were you watching your back? Of, oh, of, yes. <laughs> I was. Both times when I went past him, I kept looking over my shoulder because he was really? so out of place. I mean, he was a very, uh, he's a handsome young man. He didn't look scary. He wasn't like carrying anything that I could see, no weapons or anything. He just was out of place. It was just so odd to me. His behavior, the jumping up down out of the ditch and back up on the trail and just the whole thing was just out of character for the normal activity on that trail. Gosh. Oh man, okay.
Well, yeah, I, I like I said, I I appreciate you know the time and, and taking the call to share with me. And you said mm-hmm. you don't you don't like you don't hike that trail anymore. Not by myself. Has it changed since it's happened? With how many people hike that trail? I don't really know because it's been quite a while now, and um, I usually there's a lot of people that use that trail. Um, but I won't go now unless my I have family members with me. You know, I shared with you earlier that he was a meat salesman for some. He was a meat salesman, and his meat was actually found his his packaging meat mm-hmm. was found in Nancy's freezer. Mm-hmm. That was something you were not aware of. No, I did not know that. I do know that there was a freezer in the back of his Nissan pickup. Oh, when the police came to ask me to write down what I'd seen, I joked with them and said, well, when I first went to go for my walk, I saw the freezer in the back, and I wondered if he had a body in there. And the detective looked at me. He said, that's kind of what we want to talk about. And I said, oh, Oh, no. no. I did not know. I didn't know someone had been murdered at that point. He, When I told him, I asked if it had anything to do with the pickup, and I talked to the, I think it was a, either a state patrolman or a Thurston County Sheriff. I think it was a state patrolman because they were just doing traffic control. They had um, flares all across 507. They were directing traffic down Mole Street. So that was about 9 o'clock that I noticed that there were flashing lights. And um, so then, anyway, they asked. So the guy called. I think they called me. I'm trying to remember. Let's see. I spoke with one of the deputies and told him what I'd seen, and he told me to go home, and someone would be in touch with me. So I told him I had taken a picture. So the deputy came to our house and talked to me, and then the investigator didn't arrive until 11.15. He talked to me for a while, and he took my statement, and then he looked at the photo, and then um, he then walked down the trail so I could show him where where I saw the gentleman. Okay, and with you said you could see them from your house. Your your house. At some point in time after killing Vonda, Bernard takes her keys and drives her car to a local store to get supplies. From what I've been told, he purchases garbage bags and possibly a sleeping bag. He then, for some reason, heads to his house and then goes back to the trail where Vonda is still at. When you start on this trail, there's a small man-made parking area, enough to fit somewhere around three to five vehicles at max. Where Bernard originally parked his truck, he would have to carry Vonda's lifeless body anywhere between 50 to 70 yards on a walking trail that is often used. By doing so, he would have taken a huge risk of being spotted. So here's where things get even more odd. At that time of the day, it's still light out. It would be nearly impossible to not be spotted by someone also walking the trail or a person driving by witnessing you carry a human-like figure. To get a better understanding of the location and environment, I went to the crime scene for myself to get a visual of Sherry's testimony. You're about to hear from Mayor Wayne Fournier, who was the EMS responder first on the scene. You will also hear from the former Tanana police officer who pulled Bernard over. And I just want to prepare you. What you're about to hear is graphic and may not be suitable for all listeners. 
uh, he was seen pulling a body out of the bushes to load into his truck somehow. So I would imagine that she was cruising down the trail and he somehow uh, like assaulted her or jumped out at her, confronted her and pulled her into these bushes here. And I remember she was wet, she was cold and you know, we've got standing water right here. So this, it, it was in this area and then- She was wet. Yeah. 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 So, you can get a sense just how close the highway is by listening to our conversation. They had to be in somewhere like in this area. Yeah, I, I mean, think it's right up in here. With so he didn't he did he did you guys see if he had struck her in the head at all and like knocked her out first and then the facts as I remember them from the detectives of something similar like that. He had used um, an item, blunt force trauma to the head and and something like that. I think ultimately she lost blood from some trauma, but yeah. I think that's what he had done. The injuries I remember was uh, a cutthroat. I mean, like, cutthroat, one side to the other, right across the, you know, right across the neck, and then the uh, the sexual assault injuries. Yeah. And, but as far as, like, if she was struck in the head, I, I don't recall anything like that, but uh, I would imagine he, he, you know, it was a surprise. Yeah, and the way I recall it from talking to the detectives, I believe that's what exactly happened. Something along those lines. He had he struck her, hit her in the head, and then drug her off the road. Because he had a ten pound weight, I think, is what he was also said he was going to use to bury the body. He, yeah, at the point of contacting when we got him out of the truck and realized there was a body in there, he had told me when I was talking to him quickly, like, "Is there anybody else in the truck? What's going on?" He said that his intentions were to keep her in the sleeping bag, put some weights in there and sink her to save the family money for funeral expenses. That's his quotes. Jeez. So, and that's what made me right away pop over thinking, okay, this isn't his first time. He's done this before, and maybe he's in, involved with the Nancy Moyer case. That's what you thought initially? Like right when right you, off the top of my head because really? he, he was, no one really thinks that far ahead. Plus, with the, uh, the other items that were found, um, the sexual assault parts, it just made me think that something went wrong the first time or somewhere else in his life. And so he's trying to do it right this time, but yeah. At some point, Bernard drives his truck from where he originally had parked it and pulls along the side of the two-lane highway to get closer to where Vonda's body is laying. Bernard wraps Vonda's body in black plastic bags, followed by a sleeping bag. He then carries Vonda like this to his truck, which is now approximately 10 yards away walking distance. Someone passing by spots Bernard carrying Vonda in his sleeping bag and slows down to ask him what he's doing. He responds by saying he found a body and then proceeds to ask for their assistance burying it. This individual immediately declines and takes off. It's not too much further down the road where this individual spots two police officers parked and then in a panic rushes over to share with them what has just been witnessed. At that very moment, while explaining what had happened, Bernard is seen driving past right where the officers are parked. That is when this individual states, that's him, that's the guy with the body. After they pull Bernard over and discover a body in his truck, an alert is sent out for emergency responders. That's when Wayne answers the pager alert. Well, there was a, so he calls EMS. He calls EMS and I live, you know, I, I was volunteering for the fire department and in a, in a small town like this, all the volunteers will have like little pagers. And so I was, you know, a block away at my house and it was at night and the pager goes off and it just sounded weird. And I, the address was right out, right outside the house. 
So I came out and I turned the corner right because I live like right around the corner. I turn the corner, I come walking down right here and I get to about that intersection and Adam comes up and they, you know, the look on his face is like, this is weird. And, and I saw the, the cop cars just blocked off the truck and, and Adam, Adam says, there's a, there's a body in the truck. We've got a body in the truck. And so then, you know, my job is to come and see if the body is, is a viable person. If we can like resuscitate or if the person's injured, you know, call them if they're deceased. And so I come up and I, I see the truck, I see the, the freezer. Bernard is sitting on the, on the sidewalk right there, uh, you know, cuffed, just sitting there, just a little guy, just calm as can be, watching everything we were doing, just kind of taking it all in. And, uh, you know, Adam says the, the body's in the back. I open the door and I, I, the seat's already forward. I reach in, you have to reach through these bags. And it was, it was, it was hard to tell what was there. I, I, you know, you feel cold flesh. You, you know, you, you, there's certain criteria when you can say somebody's dead or not. And, you know, so it was kind of a weird situation because, you know, if somebody's decapitated, you can call them dead. If, you know, I'm not a doctor, but if, you know, there's certain things that are met, I can, they're dead. There's no, you know, we don't need to pull them out and do CPR and stuff like that. This was kind of a gray area because this, this body's in there and it's cold, but somebody isn't, it, just because the body's cold doesn't mean that they're dead. At this point, Wayne pulls Vonda out of Bernard's truck. As the EMS team helps lower her body to the ground, one of the responders sees that her throat has been slashed three-fourths of the way through. Upon further examination, they find railroad spikes have been inserted into her rectum and vaginal area. Vonda is confirmed dead. That's when their attention quickly turns to the large freezer in the back of Bernard's truck. What's in, what's in the freezer? What, you know, what's in the freezer? And then, you know, I want to rip into the freezer that, you know, the officers are saying, well, we can't open the freezer without a warrant. And, you know, so then we start knocking on the side of the freezer, calling out, is anybody in there? Is anybody in there? If somebody knocks back, then we can open it. Yeah. And, uh, and then, you know, we were here for a long time. Right. And I, I just, I remember staring at the freezer, just wondering how many bodies were in that thing. After Bernard is arrested, Detective Haller gets a warrant to search Bernard's home. Bernard and his dad were living with his dad's friend at the time. When police arrive, they locate plastic garbage bags Bernard had purchased and other possible evidence. And here's where things get even more bizarre. The officer who pulled Bernard over when this happened shared with me something that sounds like it belongs in a horror movie. Bernard dug a hole in his backyard that continued underneath the house. The officer said it was a 10 by 10 underground bunker filled with candles and demonic-like items. This officer is easily six feet tall and shared he could stand comfortably once inside the man-made room. This is an excerpt from Nancy's case file. Some of the names and locations of what I'm about to share will be redacted. I don't feel comfortable sharing them at this time. On April 8th, 2011, Bernard was convicted and sentenced to 26 years and 8 months for killing the victim identified as Vonda Boone. Once sentencing was completed, Detective Haller brought Bernard into an interview room and interviewed him regarding knowledge he may have had pertaining to Nancy Moyer. Detective Haller asked him to look at a photograph of Nancy Moyer. Bernard stated he was innocent and claimed never to have seen her before. Detective Haller asked him if he had sold her any frozen meat where it was believed he had. 
Bernard claimed he had never sold any frozen meat in Tenaino. Bernard claimed he was only licensed to sell merchandise in Washington. Detective Heller advised Bernard how he had spoken with other residents in Tenaino who advised him they had purchased frozen meat from him. Bernard's only response was no response. Haller asked him about his comments he had made while at Western State Institutions to his psychiatrist about bodies around Tenaino. Bernard said he was told by a person named who lived a few doors down from the Haller asked him to explain and he started pumping his right leg up and down and tapping his right hand on his knee. He stated told him how to get rid of a body. He was told to insert weights up the butt and sew it shut. Bernard calmed down after describing how to do it. Haller asked other questions regarding a pond and other statements he apparently said in the past to a friend named Bernard denied any wrongdoing and admitted to killing the female named Vonda Boone. Bernard stated Vonda was his first kill, and he hadn't done anything like that to anyone else. Detective Haller concluded his interview. Detective Elkins and private investigator Fred Doughty have both reached out to Bernard to try to interview him. Unfortunately, he's declined. So I wrote Bernard a letter. Next time on Hide and Seek. Still scares scares the heck out of me, James. In the situation, I didn't know what I could do. At the time, investigators were all looking at the right things, whether it be jam or other situations that came up. So, um, but I didn't know what what I could do to help. Possibly go on the search party. You know. Yeah. Well, fair fair enough. Now, James. She's a like a pain Searching places That I've never gone Destroy walls endless walls But ain't no rock can stop me From getting through If you Let 